0: crowds who are listening in to everything. And the kingdom of God operates entirely different than the kingdom of this world. And Jesus speaks about this in the following scriptures that we're going to talk about. There are six authoritative statements that Jesus is going to speak about today. And all of them are illustrations of the last verse that we read last week. If you need a reminder, the last verse we read last week was verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now you can imagine if you're just the average person listening to this, and Jesus says, Unless you your righteousness exceeds that of the people that everyone else thinks are the best people in the world, you can't enter the kingdom of God. There's probably a little bit of a moment of just like, well, what do I do then? And the whole purpose of this message is that Jesus is trying to get these people to understand you can't. You can't do it on your own. There is a need inside of all of us for a savior And we cannot measure up to this perfect standard of godliness. And so as we read through this next section, I want you to think about that. That is the primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. For us to understand that we need a Savior. Some people have claimed that their religion is just to try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I just try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. Talk about setting yourself up for failure. Because if your whole goal is like, I'm going to do everything Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's a very tough standard to keep. And so, Jesus is trying to get us to understand we are all equally guilty and unable to measure up to this standard of perfection. The words of this sermon are meant to, to drive us into the arms of Jesus. Not to drive us into the depths of depression because we realize, I can't possibly measure up to this standard. These people saw the Pharisees and the scribes as the highest possible model of a human being. And so when Jesus says, you need to be better than them, they're thinking, how? How is that even remotely possible? And then Jesus gives them the six statements that makes that standard even higher. So we're going to start today talking about Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 26. And Jesus is speaking on anger and murder. If you have your Bible or device, open it up. If not, it's on the screen for you. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus is going all the way back to the Ten Commandments here as he speaks about these things and this is the sixth commandment you shall not murder and jesus is showing us that obeying the commandments of god is not just a matter of outward action but he also cares about the inward attitude that we have what is in our hearts we talked about this a couple weeks ago we often say well i'm just following my heart bad idea the heart is desperately wicked So he wants to know, what is actually going on in your heart? I want to ask you, have you ever wanted to kill somebody? I mean this literally, like not just like, oh man, that person cut me off and I'm so mad I could just kill them. I don't mean that. I mean, have you ever like really wanted to end somebody's life? Because there's something that goes on inside of you when you've had that feeling that you begin to understand the depravity of, Inside of your own heart. I want to tell you something that might surprise you. Unless you've heard me tell this story before. Which I have uh, many years ago. But I have wanted to kill somebody. In a literal sense. When I was a kid, I was 10, 11 years old. And there was this brief season of my life where I actually saw my biological mother on a fairly regular basis. I wasn't raised by her. I was raised by my grandparents. She was a drug addict. I had very little to do with her. But there was this season where I would see her here and there. And at the time, she was in a relationship with a man who was a very, very bad guy. He was part of the Serenio gang member uh, gang in Los Angeles, California, which is a very famous gang. Uh, He was very abusive to her, even putting her in the hospital a couple of times. And even though I was not raised by her, I always felt protective of my mother. So there was something inside of me, even at 10 years old, I had a hatred for this man that went well beyond just dislike, but to the point of I, I would actively daydream about how I would end his life. I would pray that someday I would have the opportunity to take him out of this world. I seethed with anger inside of me, even as a child. And eventually she got away from him, but I didn't see her anymore for many, many years. But I carried this rage inside of me that had been awakened that I didn't know what to do with. I was a kid. But there was this anger that just was always right underneath the surface. In middle school, if somebody said something to me that I didn't like, I would just haul off and punch him in the face. There was just always this anger that was just underneath the surface. Years later, when I was 20 years old, I was going to Bible college in Southern California. I I had gotten saved and the Lord had done a lot of work in me and, and I was trying to become more like Jesus, but there was still always this undergirding just rage and anger in me that Didn't seem like it was going away, even though I was trying to follow Jesus. And then one day when I'm 20 years old, I go and I visit my uncle, who lived about an hour away from where I was attending Bible college in Southern California. And while I was there, my biological mother showed up, and I hadn't seen her in five or six years at this point. And I was off balance just seeing her, just just being around her. And then later that same day, this random guy shows up to the house and walks up to me and makes some joke about how I got fat. And I didn't know who he was. So I went and asked my my mom, who's this dude? And she said, oh, you don't remember this guy. And in that moment, everything in me exploded. I realized it was him. And I also realized that I was now six inches taller and 100 pounds bigger than him. Because so as a little kid, he was this big, big man, but now I was the big man. And I realized in that moment that I had the opportunity to act on every bit of rage that had been building in me for a decade. And I walked out and I got face to face with him and I was ready. I balled up my fist. And then something happened to me that I think has only happened to me once in my entire life. All of a sudden, God gave me his eyes for just a moment. And I saw this man. This is all in a split second. I saw this man whose life must have been so broken that he thought that abusing women and selling drugs and acting in violence was... The way to live his life. Just for a moment. I took a step back. I took an inventory of myself and I, I wasn't sure that that moment would last. So I got in my truck and I drove away. And my mom called me and said, come back, come back. And I said, no, I, I need to not be in that situation It was this amazing moment in my life where God took this anger that had been raging inside of me for a decade and in a second he took it away because he helped me to see through his eyes what it must be to live a life like that man has led. I don't say this story to talk about my my crazy life. I, I say it because Even in the most extreme circumstances, I've seen that God can take something away from us that has eaten at us for years, if not decades. And I know many of you probably have stories that are even more crazy than that, where you were the victim. I want you to know that God can take away even the harshest pain In the right times. Maybe there's a few of you here today that, like me, when Jesus says, if you've ever even thought about killing somebody, you're guilty of murder. That's not just an idea to you. It's a reality of your life. You've seen what happens when that kind of pain and anger and rage builds up inside of you. If you felt that, I want you to see what Jesus is saying in this whole section that we are all broken, that we are all guilty that we all have this pain and anguish of living in a world of brokenness and sin where we need to turn to the Father. Where we need to be saved by the one who can take away the greatest pain and anguish of our lives. Okay, let's bring it back down a notch. Jesus tells us even if we just speak harshly, to our brothers it's as if we have murdered them why we didn't murder somebody but but maybe we just murdered their reputation maybe we killed the way that other people see them and we take away their ability to interact with other people whatever it is jesus tells us even if we just say raka which means in aramaic you imbecile you idiot it's an arrogant pronouncement on someone else's lack of intelligence. It's prideful in us saying, I'm so much smarter than you, you idiot. It says it, it, it's like killing them. Or if you say, you fool, which in the Greek is the word moros, which is where we get moron. These both show a lack of value on another person's life. You are taking away from the image of God that is on that person by speaking to them in that way. And Jesus says this, even just this, you're, you're guilty. And even if you're on the other side of the offense and you're the one that someone else is angry with, Jesus says that if you are offering a gift at the altar and remember that a brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go be reconciled first. Then go give your gift. That means if you're sitting in worship, actively worshiping Jesus, and you remember, man, I wronged somebody. Jesus would say, literally, walk out and go make it right. That's a tough thing to do. Especially if that person is worshiping in the same room with you, and you've got to be like, this is awkward. Can we go talk? Try to make things right. Sometimes, sometimes, the shortest distance between you and God is actually through another person. Because there's something relationally wrong that you need to make right. I will make one point here, side note. If you used to really dislike somebody, but you've gotten over that, Don't go to them and say, hey, I used to really hate you. (laughs) That's happened to me. I had a guy from high school talk to me 15 years later and be like, hey, I want to apologize. I I hated you in high school. Like, I didn't know that, didn't need to know that. (laughs) But, you know, if if it's the sleeping dog, let it lie, okay? But if it's an active thing, then you need to take care of it. Matthew 5, 27 through 30. It doesn't get any lighter, guys. Adultery and lust. You've heard that it was said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus jumps to the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's a protection of the sanctity of relationships. And Jesus says, even... Looking at a woman with lustful thoughts, he's talking mostly to the men here, but this is for all of us. Even looking at somebody with a lustful intent in your heart is like committing adultery. It was before my time in this world, but I know uh, maybe one of the last times that a United States president said something really, really honest. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Cheap shot. Before my time... Jimmy Carter told the entire country that he was guilty of adultery. And everyone was like, what? And then he talked about this verse. that He had, he had looked at women with lust. Uh, he he owned up to that on the world stage. It's a pretty bold thing to do. We live in a world that is completely full of this. Right? And And... The issue is not noticing someone's beauty or attractiveness. It's when that notice turns into the gaze. Right? Think about David and Bathsheba. David walks out. He sees Bathsheba on her roof bathing. He notices a beautiful woman. At that point, he should have said, oh, I'm going to go this way. But it's when that, that notice turns into that gaze. And then that gaze for him turns into taking her away from her husband to be his and eventually murdering her husband so that she can be his. This whole process starts, and this is what happens with lust in our lives, is that it starts small. It starts with a notice. But if we don't bounce away from that, I hate that term, sorry, 90s purity culture stuff, if we we don't look away from what's going on and realize that we need to look the other direction, then it can become something much greater. We live in a world where 20 to 40% of all marriages that end in divorce state that infidelity was a primary cause of that infidelity. The percentage of men and women who regularly view explicit content is extremely high. I tried to find numbers, and it's anywhere from 60 to 90% of adults in America are viewing explicit content regularly. The average age that kids are now seeing explicit content is, depending on who you ask, anywhere from 6 years old to 12 years old. 15% were 10 years or younger. And 41% of kids say that they have seen explicit content during the school day on other kids' devices. It is everywhere. It is constant. So with all of that going on, what do we do with this verse that says, pluck your eye out, cut off your hand. Jesus speaks in this shocking manner because he wants us to understand the weight of the sin that separates us from God. He wants us to understand that this should be shocking to us. This language was figurative. He's he's not telling them to literally pluck out their eyes or cut off their hands, which some people have done because of this verse. But in Judaism, the right hand or the right eye meant dominance. And he was saying even if something is from the strength of your life, you need to get rid of it, if it's causing you to sin against God. Jesus is telling us to deal ruthlessly with the things in our lives that bring us closer to sin and further away from him. And again, his point here is not just to make you feel like, I'm doomed, I'm gloomed, I can't possibly do it. His point is you need to run into his arms. You need Jesus then he talks about divorce. Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is a tough one for our society, isn't it? The Jews at this time, on paper, hated divorce. They would tell you that it was wrong. However, women at the time had virtually no rights whatsoever. And so they were considered property to the men. And in Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament, it said that if if a man uh, gave a woman a certificate of divorce for any reason that she does not find favor in his eyes, that there could be a divorce. Now, the problem was that the different rabbis that the Jewish people were listening to had very different interpretations of what that means. What does it mean for your wife to not find favor in your eyes? Well, there was very conservative rabbis, like a rabbi named Shammai, and he would say that uh, the only way that a woman could not find favor in your eyes as if she was adulterous. So as Jesus is saying here, the only cause is for adultery. But there were other rabbis who would say things like uh, that if she over-seasoned your meal, that she could be unfavorable to you. That if she causes you to lose your temper... If a woman goes out with her head uncovered, if she speaks to a man who's not her husband in public, if she starts fights a lot, if she speaks badly about your mom and dad, some rabbis would say all of these reasons were a reason that a woman could not be found favorable and so a man could just literally write down, we're divorced, and give it to her and put her out. and. It's not like now where a woman can go take care of herself and get a job. To put her out means like her life is over unless she can go back to her family or find some way to take care of her. He could just throw her out like trash. Now, some of the men at that time really liked Rabbi Hillel's interpretation, the one who said all of those things. Another one even further would just say, if a man simply finds another woman more attractive than his wife, Then now his wife is unclean. We kind of laugh at these things now, which I agree. But we live in a world where most people who get divorced just say it's because of irreconcilable differences. Is that any different? Oh, we just don't get along. He made me mad. She upset me. We have the same thing going on today. And Jesus specifies in this section that there's the only reason is that they are guilty of adultery. There's a couple more I'll talk about in a second that the Bible talks about. But Jesus' point is because these men who are listening to him right now are divorcing their wives for all these ridiculous reasons, not only are they not against divorce. They are making divorce more and more common. They are making it an acceptable behavior in their society. And so again, they are falling short. I want to say this, kind of a side note, but it's important side note. The Bible gives actually three justifications for divorce. Adultery, which we see in Matthew and also in that verse in Deuteronomy 24. In 1 Corinthians, it tells us abandonment, which is when an unbelieving spouse abandons their believing spouse and leaves. At that point, you have the right to remarry and, and go on because you were abandoned by your unbelieving spouse. And in Exodus 21, it talks about abuse, not caring for the needs of your spouse, and not just Okay, I want to be really careful about the way I say this. But too many people now have just said like, oh, my husband said something that I didn't like, and that's verbal abuse. Okay, There's, it's a really difficult idea to talk about this, but but just saying like, oh, he irritates me is not abuse. Okay, the Bible gives us three times where it's acceptable. It still says that God hates divorce in Malachi. God hates divorce because it is the breaking of a bond that was meant to be for life. When two become one flesh, there is no way to separate that flesh without bloodshed. It is painful. It is hurtful. But there are situations. You heard my story starting out talking about anger. I don't ever want a woman to be staying in a relationship where she's being physically verbally, mentally, emotionally, spiritually abused just because she thinks it's the right thing to do. It is okay to get out of situations like that. There are circumstances, but it is the extreme outlier circumstances. It is not meant to be something that happens very often at all. And that's hard for us as we talk about this is is we say, okay, so then am I beyond the grace of God because I, I was married and then I got divorced and then I got remarried so now I'm an adulteress or an adulterer and so am, am I now like unclean to the Lord in a way yes but we all are we are all guilty again that is the whole point of this sermon is even if we are guilty of these sins we are all deeply in need of the grace of God so if we are guilty of these things, and we're guilty of anger, if we're guilty of wrath, we're guilty of all these things, I'm not saying it's okay. We should try to flee from sin as much as we can and avoid these things, but it does not mean we are outside of the glory of God, outside of his grace and mercy. Matthew 5, 33 through 37. This one's interesting because it seems like it's so much less intense than the rest of them. So here's a brief reprieve for you oaths again you have heard that it is said to you you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the lord what you have sworn but i say to you do not take an oath at all either by heaven for it is his throne or by earth for it is his footstool or by jerusalem for it is the city of the great king and do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this is from evil. We are, at our core, dishonest sometimes. Have any of you ever taught your children to lie? But they figured it out, didn't they? Right? Deep in our core, we, we, there's something where we will lie, we will... Try to say something untrue to, to avoid it. And then we'll start saying like, I swear. And then if you're really cool, you say like, uh, you know, I, I swear on a Bible. Or, or you say like, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Right? We start saying all these things. And the only reason we need to say those sorts of things is because we all know we're dishonest. And that people lie. When you go buy a house, they actually make you sign paperwork. You can't just be like, I promise I'll pay for it. (laughs) Right? We know that we have to be held to this higher standard. And so in the Old Testament, it says, if you keep an oath, keep it. But then it says, Jesus says, don't swear at all. And I love it. He says, don't swear by heaven or earth, Jerusalem. Like Those are all God's. You can't swear on the earth. It's not yours. It's God's. He says, don't even swear on your own head. You can't make your hair white or black. You can't swear by anything except for God because it's all God's. And we shouldn't swear by God because you don't want that heat. You can't keep it. Instead, it just says, I love this.' He says, instead, just let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. My wife and I were talking about this last night. I want, that's one thing I want for myself so badly. is when I say yes, I want the people that know me and trust me to be like, I trust Nick's yes. And if I say no, I want them to be able to trust that that's no. I don't want to have to say, like, I promise. Stick a needle in my, like, no. Just be somebody who people don't even have to question. I say, yeah, he keeps his word. She keeps her word. One pastor I listened to this week, I love this. Uh, He said, a closed mouth gathers no feet. (laughs) If you don't get that, think about it for a minute. You keep your mouth shut, you can't stick your feet in your mouth, right? Sometimes, you know, just take one foot out to put the other one in. I got some high schoolers who were like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Sticking your foot in your mouth means you say something you shouldn't say. Oh, okay. <laughs> Matthew 5, 38 through 42, talks about retaliation and revenge. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him 2 miles give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you people who read this and think that it's savagery don't understand it right when it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth this is actually rooted in something called the lex talionis which was the law of exact retribution because, again, another thing about us as human beings is when somebody wrongs us, we don't naturally want to wrong them back in the exact same measure that they've wronged us, do we? We want to go way beyond it. You mess with me, I'll burn your house down. Right? Like, we, we go so hard sometimes. And so this is the, the law of, let's tell saying, you cannot just exact revenge that is completely out of control when somebody wrongs you. It must be equal, right? In the, in the eyes of the law, they said that it's got to be an equal offense, right? And so it's limited retribution because our human nature is to go full out. And it says, don't resist the one who's evil and turn the other cheek. This is one of the hardest ones in the Bible for me. I'm not going to lie to you. The whole turning their cheek thing. I got a buddy named David down uh, in, in North Dakota, big, big dude from New Orleans, got the full Creole accent, all that stuff. And he says, I'll turn my other cheek, but I only got two cheeks. Then you're going to catch these hands, right? And that's naturally where I want to land on this. But, but Jesus says to turn the other cheek. And does this mean that we live in complete pacifism? No, we still live in a broken world. There's still violence going on everywhere. We we have the the ability to protect ourselves and all these things, but that's not what this is really about. He's talking about there's people around us that want to do us ill, and rather than fighting everyone, we just be Jesus to them. Turn the other cheek. When he talks about if someone makes you go a mile, go two miles, there was a, a law at that time that if a Roman soldier came to you as a Jewish person, or as a regular Gentile, and said, you have to carry my bag and my armor for one mile. They were legally allowed by Rome to do that. And so Jesus says, if that happens, carry it two miles. Blow their minds. Isn't it amazing when somebody makes you do something you're like, you know what, I'm going to go above and beyond that. That blows people's minds, and maybe they'll say, why would you do that? And now you have the opportunity to share Jesus with Somebody says, I'm going to sue you for your tunic. Be like, all right, I don't like this tunic anyways. You want my cloak? Right? Just be Jesus. Get an opportunity to, to love them, which leads us into love our enemies. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I like to imagine Matthew right there being like, "Hey," and if you greet your only, bro- if you greet only your brothers. What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? For you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're going to come back to that last verse. Where does the Bible say, hate your enemy? Nowhere. It's an interesting thing. It says, you have heard that it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Bible doesn't say that. But everything had gotten so twisted at this time with the scribes and the Pharisees that people started to believe that that was what God would want from you. Love your neighbor. But if somebody is a Gentile, if somebody is a Samaritan, if somebody is your enemy, hate them. They had twisted the truth even in their own time. And Jesus says, no, love your enemies pray for them so that you may be children of God for if you love only those who love you what does that mean? everybody does that it Says even the tax collectors do that even the Gentiles do that it Says you're called to love your enemies and to pray for them I've done whole sermons on this I'm not going to jump into it but that whole idea of praying for your enemies is life changing guys it is hard to hate somebody that you actively pray for. At first, you will. At first, you're going to want to pray God, the, the imprectatory psalms. You're going to be like, God, would you break their teeth on rocks? Right? That's like David prays. That's where you're going to start, and that's okay to start there. But you keep praying for them, you're going to realize it's hard for you to pray those sorts of things about the people that you are thinking about and praying for. And you start to think about them as real humans. As people who are created in the image of God. And that's when you start to really understand what God says about loving your enemies. So summing this whole thing up, verse 48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, okay. That's, that's easy. Imagine if you're there sitting t- and listening to that conversation That's the moment you're like, well, I'm out. Like, I already thought I was out when you said, you know, all these things. But now you're telling me the standard is perfection? The standard is be just like God? The word perfect here is the word teleos. It means completed, mature, to reach a goal, to fulfill a purpose that somebody was made for. This isn't talking about holy perfection. If we had holy perfection, we would be God. But the standard here is just as hard for us, really, because he's saying, I want you to be completed, mature, whole in your discipleship, in your maturity as a follower of Jesus does anybody in this room think that they are fully there? Good, because I would have mocked you openly. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Do you want to be a mature Christian? What marks maturity in a believer? Is it Bible memorization? Is it putting, being put into a place of leadership? Is it leading a certain number of people to faith. No, it's it's this sermon. It's, it's loving your enemies. It's not raging in anger or lust or all these things. That call to be perfect would have been the last straw to everybody who is listening to this message. It would have been the moment where you drop your head and shoulders and simply admit that there just isn't Possibly any way that you can uphold this standard. And then that's when Jesus would say, yeah. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of this message is we cannot uphold the standard of perfection. We were born into a broken state. David in the psalm says, I have become like a broken vessel. And that's the whole message of this sermon on a slightly elevated hill. He's speaking to them, and he needs them all to understand his words are that they are all, we are all broken vessels that can only be restored by the hands of the master potter. They cannot be, they cannot mend themselves, they can't restore themselves, they cannot save themselves, but in the hands of the king, in the hands of the potter, they can be redeemed, and they can have value in this life. And this is what Jesus is telling us. Only when we are redeemed by Him can we have purpose and value and joy and live this life that He has created us to live. We have all fallen short. But there is a God who loves us and wants to bring us back into perfect relationship. This is going to seem like a weird way to finish my sermon. You guys remember the old... Old, from the 1960s, cartoon show, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Okay, none of the new digital-looking trash ones, okay? None of those. This one, stop animation, 1960s, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, with Hermie, the, the misfit elf. I don't like Christmas. Sorry if that hurts anybody's feelings. I don't like Christmas. I don't like Christmas music. One thing I love about Christmas, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And it's not because of Rudolph, it has nothing to do with Rudolph. It's the misfit toys. You guys remember the island of the misfit toys? I'll get stupid and emotional about this, okay? My whole life, I felt like I was one of the misfit toys, something broken. Something wrong. And then this, in, this, in this stupid little show, Rudolph and Santa come to the island of the misfit toys and the king of the island says, I want you to take all of the misfit toys and I want you to take them and find them homes with children who will love them where they can be played with and adored. And it's such a picture to me because we're all broken like misfit toys. And we can only be redeemed when the king says, it's time for you to go into the world and to do what you were meant to do. Are you someone like me who is completely, totally aware of your own brokenness. Like you know that deep down at your core that there's something missing that you cannot do for yourself, that you cannot get yourself. You know that things like anger and lust and lies and revenge can cloud your mind and lead you further into being exactly the opposite of the kind of person that you want to be. If that's you today, I want you to understand that this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. You are exactly who he's talking to. He's speaking to the crowds, but it's only those who understand that they cannot possibly measure up to this level of perfection that really understand that the whole message here is to be the vessel who places themselves into the hands of the master potter And asks him, will you redeem me? To be the misfit toy who goes to the king and says, will you redeem me? This is the message of the gospel. There is a standard of perfection. That if you want to be your own God, that's what it means to be your own God. But none of us can. And so we cry out. To the Father, we cry out to Jesus. And we say, Jesus, would you save me? And He's so good, and He's so merciful, He's so graceful that even while we were still yet sinners, He dies for us and He saves us. If you need to do some business with God because He's speaking to you today, You're having one of those moments like I had when I stood face to face where there's a moment of clarity where you understand something and don't leave here today without doing that. Find me, find one of our elders, find the person that drug you in here kicking and screaming. Don't leave here today without doing that business with Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that we are in the hands of the master potter, you. And that though we are broken, though we have cracks and crumbles, you can mend us in the way that only you can. And though we have maybe things in our past that create pain, hurt, anger, lust, whatever it is, God, you can heal all of those things. And that is just mind-blowing. That you can bring healing to our brokenness. And so we don't, we don't read this message today as, a, as an excuse to just continue sinning. Far be it from that, Lord. We read it as a message that though we are sinners, you love us, and you will redeem us. So Lord, I pray that you would pull every single person in this room or watching online closer to you today, that they will leave here different, and that they will know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said.